Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're now listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. Today, you'll meet one of my favorite athletes of all time. He's won the Super Bowl of his sport four times with his team of canine athletes. He's defeated cancer and addiction, and he's the most rogue person I have ever met. Please enjoy. This is the Rogue Ones Podcast, and I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. This podcast talks to fascinating people with the most amazing stories so that we may listen and learn to develop a life of the extraordinary. The conversation you'll hear today was one of the first ones I ever dreamed of having, so you could hear this guest's story. His life is that of an ultimate rogue, making both good and bad decisions, but learning every step of the way. It's one of the times I found a random contact email on a website, mustered up all my courage, sent a request to be on this podcast, and got a response of yes. Yes is a beautiful word, isn't it? Hmm. So, in April, I sat down with nerves blazing to talk to Lance Mackey, a four-time Iditarod champion. He's the only person to win the Iditarod and Yukon Quest in the same year, and he did it twice. Now, there's a high probability you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's okay. You will learn soon. Lance is a dog sled musher and leads a team of 16 dogs through Alaskan wilderness for miles and miles and days and days. He also has an award-winning documentary that's been made about his life, and a feature film is in the works. But in addition to all those things, and maybe even more importantly, Lance is a throat cancer survivor and an ex-addict who spent most of his life running from what, it seems, he was born to do. Today's story for you, The Rogue One, dreaming of having a life of the extraordinary, is about a prodigal. Maybe you think you could never return to a thing you once did. Maybe you've run away searching for answers and have found yourself lost. Maybe you're afraid of what's possible or scared that your dreams will never come true. Take heart, there's a life past the confusion and Lance's story proves it. This episode gets to the heart of what this entire podcast has been about the whole time. Hearing people's stories inspire us in our own rogue journeys to do things that we could never have imagined. Thanks for listening today. I truly believe you'll be glad you did. Enjoy my conversation with the one and only Lance Mackey. I would love to hear in your words what... um, what is this world of dog sled racing, specifically the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest? Because I think a lot of my listeners probably have no idea. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I guess let me start from the beginning. I was born and raised 
uh, in the state of Alaska where sled dog racing is the, the state sport and um, was, depending on how you look at it, either fortunate or unfortunate to uh, grow up uh, around the sport, uh, meaning my father and mother both uh, uh, was active in that in the in the sport, you know, in the seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Of course, I wasn't even thought of at that point. Um, as uh, time went by, my dad got more involved, more active in the sport. My mom was my, my mom was racing. Um, but you know, back back then they had women's and men's class. My dad was uh, one of uh, Joe Rennington Sr., who was the father of David Rod, meaning he. Uh, he founded it. He, you know, reestablished the, the sled dog in the state of Alaska, basically, when the, when the snow machines were taken over. And uh, my okay. dad was his right-hand man, ultimately being the co-founder of the Iditarod, and then went on to uh, compete in the event. Now, I, again, like I said, however you want to look at it, fortunately or unfortunately, grew up around the sport, but it was um, something Why that, unfortunately? Well, because it was more of a... Um, Oh, sometimes maybe a disciplinary tool for my folks. You know, I'd irritate them or do something, and it's, oh, you know, go clean the dogs. Go feed the dogs. <laughs> hang out with the dogs, basically. So I spent a lot of time with the dogs as, as a youngster. <laughs> uh, and yeah. probably, for, for, probably for all the wrong reasons. So the older I became, the less appealing they became. And, and only because my parents had split up when I was around 10 years old. Dad left some dogs behind. Now it became a responsibility, a financial burden, and a commitment. That, gotcha. and you know, at ten years old, I wasn't, I didn't ask for. Right, <laughs> uh, but however, it, it, it did turn out to be um, kind of a blessing in disguise because shortly after my dad won the Idid Rod, we got to witness that, and that that somewhere along the line uh, affected me, unbeknownst to me at that young age. You know, I, I didn't know how it affected me. So, how how old it, were you when he won his first? Um, let's see, what was I? Uh, eight years old. Eight years old. Okay. So then, at ten, when they when my parents split up, you know, uh, yeah. there was nothing more that I wanted to do than, than to be like my father and you know compete in an event that he helped uh, create and ultimately succeeded in. And it was, um, you know, it's all we kind of knew growing up was dogs. Uh, or being around dogs, and then, and again, it wasn't all that glamorous for us. I ended up uh, competing in junior races up until I was 17 years old, and, you know, being the, the man of the house, so to speak, I have a little brother uh, that I, you know, took hmm. care of, and my, my mom was uh, now a single mom working, you know, several jobs and trying to uh, keep our mind off of what them two had going on, I guess. It, it, it took me a little while to realize that there was uh, more life than, than dogs and setbacks and all the responsibilities that, I'd, that I had um, mm. <laughs> inherited, so to speak, until I was 17. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, things ended uh, somewhat abruptly, and I decided that dogs were not what I was in involved or wanting to do or wanting to be involved in and I um, I left home uh, fairly young you know prior to 18 and and uh, set off across the state of Alaska to find new uh, adventure I guess and do all the yeah. things that no parent would brag about their kids doing um, <laughs> I know I, I, I really disappointed and let my folks down in many ways and, and like I said I wasn't uh, I wasn't an ideal child and you know, and the more seemed to uh, 
irritate them or, uh, you know, disappoint them, the more I seem to want to do those things, I guess. I held a grudge. You know, I held a grudge against my father and I uh, blamed him for all the things that all of a sudden at 17, I realized that I had either missed out on or what have you. I don't really know. I could probably go on for days about reasons why, making excuses of, you know, my adolescent behavior. You know, I kept, like I said, I carried that, that, uh, grudge around for a while and, and, uh, you know, the, the more they were opposed to things, uh, that I was interested in doing, the more it made me want to do them. And I ended up, um, on the Bering Sea, uh, as a commercial fisherman for about a dozen or so years. That sounds like a long time, Lance. Is that a long time for a career like that? I mean, like that's a long time, <laughs> 12 well, years. You know, is- it was, but it was, you know, for me, again, being only familiar at that time with the state of Alaska and things it had to offer and the, and the um, you know, the career opportunities for somebody like me. I was the high school dropout. Okay. <laughs> I was a hard worker with no education, basically, and huh. to fit right in the fishing industry type of uh, mentality where you work hard, you, you play hard afterwards, and all you had to do is have a work ethic and, and, but you, were, and that, you were making a lot of money. You're making you right. You were making more money I, than a lot of college c- graduates. Oh, at, at 17 years old, I started making yeah. good money and, and it only got better. And, um, which was more addicting than, than anything. Uh, because yeah. again, you know, I'm, by, by the time I was 21 years old, I had every, you know, motorized vehicle toy that you could have. I had, I had, um, yeah. you know, nice houses, things of that nature, and I had never even finished high school. I could go work yeah. for you know, six, seven months or whatever a year and make more than some, um, like I said, high school or, excuse me, college uh, graduates. And yeah. Um, I've listened to a lot of interviews where you talk about that time, and it was a fairly destructive time, actually, for you, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the most polite way I've ever heard it put. But, uh, yeah, very destructive <laughs> in many of ways. And, you know, destructive on the you know the relationship I had with my folks. Destructive uh, on my body. Self-inflicted uh, a lot. Yeah, of it. you you got to the place of addiction pretty hard. I did, and you know, again, it seemed it seemed appropriate and justifiable with the lifestyle uh, that I was you know involved in and the and the industry. And I'm not going to say that's you know the stereotype fisherman, but um, I think at one point in time that you could probably say that was a stereotype fisherman. You worked hard. Most people that I worked with were uneducated criminals of some sort um, mm-hmm. uh, that didn't really have a chance, I guess, maybe to fit in in, in the real world and have a real nine to five mm-hmm. job. These weren't those type of people, and nor am I. I, I still to this day have sure. not had. Um, well, I should say I haven't had, but I haven't had since 1999 a job where I punched a time clock and I worked from you know nine to five, six days a week. I'm not that guy, yeah. and that was. I the don't kind think of a job like that could hold you, Lance. No, it wouldn't. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in this chair talking to you for 15 minutes, and I'm rocking back and forth and kind of. Yeah. So long. I. That being said, I've, I've had lots of jobs that I've tried and I worked my ass off to be good at. Um, mm-hmm. but, but there's only a couple of things I feel I'm naturally, um, good at and that's racing and driving dogs and, uh, racing and driving cars. So I feel like I'm, uh, racing and driving. That's it. 
That's it. I don't know yeah. if it has an engine. I seem to be attracted to it. You, you tell the story of when you came out of alcoholism and, and addiction. It was mm-hmm. it was just like one night where you made that decision, and then you made a complete change. Can you talk about that for a second? And well, there was yeah, it was a, it was an immediate decision, but it had been a, a long a long uh, road, I guess, if you will, leading up to that night, and that. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was drinking heavily. I was doing lots of drugs, and I was in a point of in a, a train of thought or mindset that if I lived through that night, um, if I lived through that night, I was done completely living that type type of lifestyle. If I died that night, it would not be um, you know nobody would basically notice, and mm. it was either you know, continue to be a, an embarrassment and a disappointment. Uh, if I lived through that night, I was going to change, um, I was going to change my life for the better. And, uh, that meaning that, you know, I had to get out of where I was at, get away mm-hmm. from the people I surrounded myself with, get away from that. Uh, I say career, you know, I worked 12 years out there on fishing boats. When it was all said and done, I had nothing to kill for memories. And not all of them good. Now, mm-hmm. I also believe that things happen for a reason, and you have to sacrifice something to gain something else. And I, I feel that had I not maybe went through all those years of um, <laughs> of abuse, abusing myself a lot of the time, that mm-hmm. I might not be sitting here today, the person that I am. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not mm-hmm. embarrassed. But I am a little bit disappointed in my choices. And, you know, that being said, I have a, a beautiful year and a half old son that I now have, you know, some life experience to, uh, to teach him. And as opposed to, you know, not knowing some of the outcomes, the consequences for the actions, at least I'll be able to explain I'm kind of proud that I can say that and not be able to uh, send my child into this world, you know, with blinders on, basically. What brought you back to the lifestyle um, of dog sled racing? What was it that brought you back? As a young boy, I had dreamt and fantasized about winning the idea. Hmm. That, that was the, you know, the little boy dreaming in me, the reality yeah. and the lifestyle leading up to, you know, 30 years old, uh, the reality was that daydream was just a dream. Now, I had put a fair amount of time into this, answering this particular question to myself. What could I do to rebuild and get the attention of my parents? I wanted to do something that they, that I knew they would think was sincere that I was doing this on my own. I didn't ask uh, anybody for help. I was, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to get any help and Mm. to, and to build something from complete scratch. I was literally eating at the food bank, living in a tent with two young kids and a woman uh, that I ultimately married that my parents did not approve of. And we started something that nobody believed that was even 
possible, you know, for, for two people mm-hmm. like ourselves and our background and our, you know, life till that moment and our situation at the time. Again, living, in the, living yeah. on a, in a tent on the beach eating, you know, literally three times a day if, if we could get there to, at the food bank. Wow. It was nothing more than a, yet another dream of running the idea ride. But having a couple of dogs in the yard to, you know, for the kids to play with and, you know, again, a little responsibility and a, and a daily chore, it kind mm-hmm. of re-sparked that interest of the dogs that I really didn't know I had bottled up inside me, you know. I was told at a young age that I had natural abilities with dogs and stuff, and I never even, you know, probably never even acknowledged uh, some of those comments until one day driving around the neighborhood, I saw an old dog sled. This is in the summer months. I saw an old dog sled sitting in the, in the lawn, of this uh, house and it had flowers growing out of it. Hmm. And I just stopped and I looked at that sled. I don't know, it is this, the, the setting it had, the flowers growing out of it, it just came to me. I said, this is what I need to do, not only for me, but my parents, they'll know, this is, this is what I need to do. And at that point in time, I never thought more than two seconds about doing the other run one time. I wanted, I wanted to do it one time on my own from start to finish with no help from any, any of my friends or family at that time. And to show my folks, because I was never good at committing something, falling all the way through with it, you know. I, uh, I started gathering up a couple of dogs here and there. I'm running on, you know store-bought dog food and, and uh, canned salmon off the shelf and table scraps and beans and rice and, you know, whatever I could muster up. And it was mm. not, uh, you know, race diet dog food or race caliber dogs, but it wasn't about, again, you know, winning the idea. It wasn't about that. No. Right, right. Breaking the relationship with the dogs and the, and the passion that I didn't realize I had. And, uh, and just enjoying them. And, and because I feel, you know, maybe I was robbed of the enjoyment part at an early age because it had become a commitment and a responsibility that we hadn't wished for. You know, when dad was around, it was his, his responsibility, his financial burden and what have you. And, you know, now all of a sudden we have, you know, 15 dogs or something. And I have two small kids and, a, you know, a blue tarp uh, shack at the time. And, and uh, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden I got this crazy thought in my head, I want to run me a dinner ride. And, you know, my wife at the time, uh, she never batted an eye and, and never doubted or discouraged me from pursuing that. And, and again, mm-hmm. they had no clue what they were getting into. They didn't know what the financial burden. And now I want to go run an event that costs, you know, upwards of $30,000. Are you kidding me? Or I don't have three hundred dollars. I don't three thousand. You know, but if you want something bad enough, you will make it happen. I'm a very determined person, and yeah. and again, the the more you tell me I cannot do something, uh, the more determined I become. And when I when I signed up for that event the following June, you know, some of my some of my closest friends laughed at me. My dad. When uh, I mentioned it to him, I remember the, um, you know, maybe the little snicker in the, in the 
kind of look of, mm -hmm. oh, here we go again, yet another disappointing, embarrassing glance mm -hmm. moment that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to try to defend or what have you. Uh, you know, it, it, it really did, um, it did motivate me. And it did change um, my way of thinking and my my goals, I guess, throughout life. And, um, you know, I made it to the starting line that March um, on a shoestring budget and, you know, pure determination, I guess, to succeed in, in doing what I had set out to do. I made it to the finish line that year. And <laughs> I'll never forget, you know, seeing both my dad and my mom there. They hadn't really got along or communicated much, you know, over the several years prior. And um, mm -hmm. here I get they are in Nome. They got their arm around each other. They got, you know, mm -hmm. tears in their eyes. And they're at the, you know, a big smile on their face at the finish line there. And I, um, I, I'll never forget the feeling or the look. I had never saw either of my parents cry tears of joy for something I had done. I see him cry many times, believe me. <laughs> it was out of embarrassment <laughs> and disappointment and disgust. And, you know, I had never seen him cry tears of joy. And that's something that, um, you know, 18 years later, I'm uh, trying to duplicate. I want to see him cry like that again. I, I will never forget the first time I heard my dad tell me that he was proud of me. It wasn't because I had won the end of It was because I had changed my life on my own, you know, and I did it without yes. saying a word to him. You know, at one point I, you know, I, I don't know that my dad even um, acknowledged that he had me as a son, maybe to some people, because it was that embarrassing. Today, he brags about me and the things I've done. I think of the Bible story of the prodigal son that comes home. Yeah. That's just, a, it just seems like a, um, you came home in a way, you know, coming yeah. back to the activity, to the lifestyle. Yeah, it came full circle. Now, I had just accomplished an event that I, I saw myself um, <laughs> over the 10 days it took me or 12 days it took me that year to get to know I grew uh, very fond of. I made a lot of mistakes in and that I felt that I could better um, my position the following year. I was I hadn't even made it to the finish line of that event that year, and I was already thinking of the next year. This is the same event that I had never considered doing more than once, you know. But yeah. all that changed when I saw that tear and that smile on both of my parents' face. Okay? Then it just kind of it, 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 it fueled that fire that – here is something that I did that made me feel good, that made my parents proud, that I feel that I, I could probably do um, better than what I just showed. And again, I'm doing all this learning basically on my own, how to train. I, I, mean, I didn't really know anything about it, even though I grew up around it. I, I, I like to say yeah. I'm kind of like the MacGyver of my sport. Whatever it takes to get the job done and the things that I see – in my, in my mind, might not be the least, you know, so-and-so sees it or my competitors do it. And I realized right then and there that I'm not the normal person, I guess, that I don't want to be like That's this right. guy that I'm competing against. And I don't want to do it just like them. I'm going to do it my way. 
there's there's nothing in the world that comes easy as far as success. If you succeed at something, it doesn't matter what it is, it comes at a price. You don't have to win to be successful. Right. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, uh, shortly after finishing that first idea ride, I was diagnosed with um, stage four throat cancer, <clears throat> and I, mm. I nearly um, I didn't nearly make it through that. Um, you know, I, I spent uh, from April till October that year in the hospital. Um, what year was that, Lance? That was right after the 2001 I did it on. So, uh, okay. yeah, 2001. Well, I was told I wasn't going to live through that whole ordeal. You know, I remember, tell, I remember the doctor bluntly tell me, you know, if you live through this, uh, unfortunately, you'll never race dogs again. And I remember telling him, I said, uh, you know, in all due respect, sir, I said, I don't know who the hell you think you are telling me what I can and cannot do. I said, my parents tried that for the first 30 years of my life, and it didn't work. I just met you five months ago. Now you're going to tell me who I am, what I can and can't do. I said, watch this. Uh, I remember it, and I get kind of fired up about it because it still motivates me. On Thursday, they diagnosed me. Saturday, I want to do the operation. And I said, fine, because I got things to do Monday. Let's get this done. My doctor looked at me and said, oh, the things you think you're going to be doing this summer are sidelined, and we got a different approach and different plans. I like your attitude. It, it, it pissed me off to, you know, I'm sorry, it made me mad. And, and that was what I believe contributed to my, <laughs> my living through that whole ordeal because I'm – you know, being told what I can and can't do in a place that I didn't want to be, surrounded by people I didn't know that I'm relying on. And now I'm at the in the hands of, you know, again, a bunch of people I was uncomfortable with. I had been on my own my entire life doing what I wanted, relying on me. I told my doctors that I was going to run the Adirad that year, and they told me that I was going to be busy and wouldn't be able to. I mean, at the end of June, I um, somehow uh, signed up for that event against the doctor's um, advice. By the time by the time March um, happened, I ran that event sponsored by all the doctors that told me I wouldn't be able to do it. And again, I managed to get to the starting line, and I left that starting line with a feeding tube and pure determination. Now, I didn't make it to the finish line. It was by far the hardest race I've ever ran in my life, mentally. And from that moment until today, I still believe that that was the hardest summer of my life. And there's no dog race long enough (laughs) that would be able to challenge me mentally or physically the way that summer in the hospital was. You know, people are surprised that all of my dog racing successes came after cancer. And anybody that's ever went through cancer, that's run the toughest race of their life, and anything after that seems easy. Now, I'm not saying that you're on the Yukon Quest are easy, and I wouldn't wish cancer upon anybody. You won both the Yukon and the Iditarod in the same year, right? I did exactly that. That's, that's what I was referring to, and I, I did that two years in a row, back-to-back, in 2007 and 2008. Oh, did you really? And that is something that was thought to be impossible. What about each of those races makes it well, impossible to win both of them? They're both a little over a thousand miles um, in distance, uh, and uh, at that particular time, the Iditarod was a week later than the end of the Yukon Quest. 
So to come off Yukon Quest and oh. then a week later to go to another thousand mile event, um, not too many people had even attempted it. Hmm. It's it's a lot to race at that caliber yeah. for a thousand miles, oh, and then to turn around and think that you can do it again uh, and be competitive. And you did it. Well, and, and <laughs> two I did times. And, and again, not because I'm any better, not because my dogs are any better, but I have a different way of looking at both events. I'm thinking about the style of dog it will take to compete in both events. Dogs that have mm-hmm. high attitude and enthusiasm and, and eating habits that, in my opinion, mm-hmm. would be the two things that would be the most contributing to succeeding in both of these events. What I did was build a dog, again, based around me. I came from, you know, <laughs> cancer. I have a lot of side effects with circulation and, and what have you, so I don't need high-maintenance dogs. I am a very high-maintenance person because of my issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, dogs that don't need booties, dogs that eat everything, dogs that are enthusiastic about doing what they do. Same as me. And I, and I used a lot of my fishing career theory of myself to formulate mm-hmm. and build this type of a dog. Myself, I'm, you know, not very big. I have a, a high metabolism. I consume a lot of food, but I cannot do it at one time. But if I eat small snacks often, my energy levels continuously up and I can go further. I can work longer hours. I can, you know, maintain that that level. And I thought, well that makes sense as a person, why wouldn't it make sense as a as a dog? We maintain, you know, consistent speed or work, you know, speed. We mm-hmm. ate often. We didn't have highs and lows. We went the same speed from the time we got out of our bunk until the time we got back in our bunk. We didn't know exactly how long that was going to be. <laughs> you know, it made sense to me. Hey, yeah. I'll slow my team down a little right. bit. I'll feed them more often. I can go further. And by the time, mm-hmm. you know, I built that type of a dog, I was doing things in the sport that nobody was able to um, duplicate. And now, you know, I still am the only person to win both of those events in the same year. And, but mm-hmm. there's people who are coming closer and closer um, and building off of some of the pedigree that I established. And, you know, that's something I can be proud of. I've, Absolutely. I've not only succeeded, I've, I've contributed to the success of other kennels. And that is something that will be around forever, long past, you know, me being gone. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned it's not necessarily successful doesn't mean you're winning, but successful means, you know, you're working as hard as you can. And and I I would think that success means your legacy is living on in more than just one way. I don't know who, but somebody's going to beat Michael Phelps's swimming record someday, you know, but what else is he doing to further um, his legacy? And I think you adding to the pedigree of, of the athletes in the activity is absolutely a legacy. I agree. I feel, you know, blessed in the fact that I've been, you know, successful in the sport that I chose to uh, pursue. You know, and, and it's not, I shouldn't say sport. It is a sport. To a lot of people, it's a sport. Mm-hmm. To a lot of people, it's a vet. To me, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's all of those things in one. You know, the place that I live. I, I live off grid. I live up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. I don't see my neighbors. 
I have a generator for power and I haul the water, but it makes it, it motivates me as well. I have to get up every day and and pursue my career, so to speak, and, and continue to make it. We don't have 401ks. We don't have paid vacations, no medical and dental. It's not even justifiable sometimes. <laughs> the, the money that we spend mm-hmm. to, to train all your, uh, you know, to put all our eggs in one basket, so to speak, meaning the Edirat. Edirat is our Super Bowl. Okay. We have other races leading up to our Pro Bowl or our Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do as many of those preseason races, just like, a, you know, preseason football games to pick out our you know, main squad. Main squad uh, means your combination of dogs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah we're going to take our, our main 16 dogs to the starting line of the Adira. And, you know, from June, when we sign up for that event, which doesn't take place to the first weekend in March, you know, and people ask why so long in advance. And, you know, from June to March, it, it takes that amount of time to financially, mm-hmm. mentally, and physically mm. be ready mm-hmm. uh, with you and your team. Mm. And um, so we, we do a, a lot of preseason, you know, weekend events that are sometimes only 200 miles. Okay. Um, uh, and, and we do those, you know, pretty much every weekend from the middle of December to the first pre- first uh, weekend in March. So, uh, you know, hopefully we can offset some of the expense uh, by the time we get to the Iditarod, uh, you know, depending on the <laughs> – Depending on the year, unfortunately yeah. for me, uh, most of my race um, success came, you know, several years back when there was a fair amount of funding. Where does that funding come from? Well, the majority of it is sponsorship for the, the event. Okay. They do a lot of fundraising uh, through raffles. Um, each each person just to sign up spends $4,000. That's just to put your name on the Oh, page. is it really? Uh, and, and, and it only gets worse from there. Um <laughs> The event itself, if you was to start from scratch and you needed every single thing you would need to be comfortable, let's say, uh-huh. um, you're looking at about $30,000 oh at a minimum for a eight to 10 day event. Wow. And it's, it, oh, it's absurd. And the, you know, the thing is, there's, there's so many variables uh, between the weather and the snow conditions and the, um, things of that nature that you have to be ready for all of those variables. Uh, okay, do- dogs don't eat the same type of foods at 40 above as they would at 40 below, or you know. So, so the weather, the weather patterns in the state can change in five minutes, let alone in 10 days. So you have to have all of these extra what ifs out wow. there. So then I have to ask the question: Why? Uh why do you why do you do it? <laughs> why does why does anybody do it? I guess it's just ingrained in you. Well, you, have you know, to. well, yeah. I mean, we don't have any choices. We don't have to go out there in those elements. We don't have to sign up for this event. Um, like I said, it's it's a lifestyle. Yeah, it's a personal challenge. Uh-huh. It's a um, sense of accomplishment and. It's also something that anybody can be involved in as far as a professional type sport or event or yeah. what have you, where you are solely responsible for the 16 dogs that you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. There is no outside assistance. You're traveling across the state of Alaska uh, by dog team traveling anywhere from 10 to 15 miles an hour. You take in 
beauty mm-hmm. that people pay tens and tens of thousands of dollars to, to come see on a you know an airplane trip or a cruise ship or what have you for a second mm-hmm. or a minute or a couple of days. Mm-hmm. We could just spend you know eight ten days out in the middle of God's country where mm-hmm. there is nobody but you mm-hmm. and. It makes you just appreciate who and what you have. And, and again, this sense of accomplishment. You get to know, I don't care if it takes you a month, and I don't care if you're in, you know, a hundredth place. Mm-hmm. You feel you've won. Yeah. It's a very, very small group of people who have accomplished, you know, the starting to the finish line of the idea ride. And here's a, here's a stat that um, – that most people are just blown away by. More people have been to the top of Mount Everest than ever finished the Iditarod. Wow. That is a fact. And in all those years, there's only, <laughs> I think it's 18 people who have ever won the event. For a kid that lives in the state of Alaska or in the corner of Texas or in the, you know, tip of, it doesn't matter where you're from. You're running around your neighborhood thinking that you can be the best in the world at something. Hmm. It's not very often that those things actually happen. So the Olympics just happened. And I think everybody, no matter what age you are, I'm 27 and I watch the Olympics thinking maybe one day, (laughs) you know, like, and it's never going to happen for me. Right. But like for a kid in Alaska, it actually really could because it's it's that attainable, but also very difficult you know, that's the interesting thing about it. Because of my, my racing success, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, um, you know, travel to different places, um, promoting not only our sport, but I guess, you know, the way I see it, I, I'm, giving, um, I'm giving hope to a lot of people who think they don't fit in in a certain, you know, lifestyle or that they're – scared to um, change, that are scared mm-hmm. to um, disappoint. It means a lot to be able to go to a, a gymnasium with a, you know, a school sitting on the floor listening to me tell a story about, you know, face down on the, <laughs> face down on the damn concrete one day and, uh, and living at the top of a mountain the next. Mm-hmm. There is hope. There's a lot of people that don't believe there's anybody that gives a crap. And, um, you know, I was one of them. And the first thing, you know, you have to do is admit that um, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And you have to admit who you are, accept who you are. And then you can change. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons that um, that I was able to do the things that I've done. And I don't think that... Um, it's ended at the finish line and no, I think I have, right. um, I still have a lot to offer and, and I don't know exactly why I was um, mm-hmm. granted a second chance at life. <laughs> I don't know exactly mm-hmm. why. And I'm not um, one to try to figure it out. I, I was too long ago. Don't try to figure it out. Just let it be. And, you know, in the end, it'll all make sense. <laughs> mm. It'll all make sense. Do you think you'll do another Iditarod? Absolutely. Good. Absolutely, I'm. I'm almost. Um, I'm almost half tempted to go next year. I've um, the last attempt I made at the Didrod. Uh, I was not fortunate enough to finish, mm-hmm. and it wasn't because of the dogs. It wasn't because of my sponsors or my fans or friends. It was because of me and uh, my mind frame. 
<laughs> I had a few down years. And the one thing that I haven't accepted at this particular time is that year that I did not make it to Nome, I really disappointed my dogs. Hmm. And I let them down. And I have not accepted that. And I owe it to them to be the person on the back of the sled at the finish line with them. They have, in the last several years, been at that finish line with another driver uh, behind them. Mm -hmm. But for me not to be the person on the back of the sled, uh, it's pretty hard for me to swallow. And, and it's not just because I think I owe it to them. It's also part of me accepting the fact that uh, I might not be doing this uh, a whole lot longer. Not because I don't want to, not because I'm not driven or passionate. It's because my body is a little bit beat up. That's right. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it, it is becoming more and more difficult um, until my new baby boy was born. My entire life has been about me, the things I want to do. And when that boy was uh, born, things changed. Mm. And it's not just about me. And you know, I can sit here and tell you all about the selfish me, <laughs> but I can also sit here and tell you about the realistic me. And the realistic me is, I love driving dogs. I love racing cars, but I love that little boy or both of them. And uh, whatever it takes, or whatever means um, to make him smile on a daily basis and keep him happy and healthy. That's my number one goal. And I have another child uh, at the end of June uh, due. And oh, congratulations. Oh. And thank you. Yeah, no, and I'm, we're looking forward to it. And, you know, <laughs> I'm almost 50 years old having children. You know, it's not all bad. How did the documentary come to be and was that a cool experience and is it still happening what's going on with it how it came to be was a complete accident i was actually a spokesperson person for the livestrong foundation here in or there in the state of alaska and i was invited to uh, austin to do a commercial uh with lance armstrong and several of his i guess sponsored athletes that little clip i guess the trailer um, there was a follow-up um, uh, ad that they wanted to run. This time they were coming to the state of Alaska. They were going to interview me. And, and I don't know, three or four people showed up and they did this interview in my garage. <laughs> and and the camera guy, when it was all said and done, pulls me inside and he said, hey, my name is Greg Coach. He said, I'm just a filling camera guy here for this. Uh, he said, but what I really do is documentaries. He said, I'm a 10 time, you know, uh, Emmy award winning documentary filmmaker, blah, blah, blah. And I, oh, casual, very casual. Yeah, yeah. And my guy, yeah, so you don't need any dogs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, well, you know, your, your story is very inspiring, uh, not just to me, it's very intriguing to a lot of people, and more and more people uh, should hear it. And if, if you're interested, we wouldn't mind speaking to you, uh, you know, maybe put something on film. And I kind of laughed out loud and I said, yeah, that's funny. I got something going right now with a company out in L.A. And, his, and, you know, his mouth dropped to the floor and his eyes got real big. 
And he said, so this is somebody's already working with you? And I said, well, I haven't really heard too much about it. He said, well, if something ever happens, uh, well, that doesn't, you know, they don't follow through, you should, you should contact me. And again, at this particular time, I had never dreamt or thought that this was even serious, that this other company was kind of a grasping for straws or something, because in my mind, I'm just a guy with a bunch of dogs that happen to succeed at a sport I love. Mm. Why would I be an inspiration or why would anybody want to hear this story? A couple of years had gone by and, and nothing ever became of it. Craig apparently was paying attention and got a hold of me just, you know, a month short of this um, whole deal um, coming to an end. Hmm. And uh, he asked if he could, uh, if he could um, take a chance and, and, you know, he would like to follow where they left off. And I said, okay, Greg, here's the deal. I've now three years, invested three years basically with this company that told me the same thing that you're telling me. Yeah. And I said, um, what is this entirely? And he said, well, I'd like to take a camera crew and, and basically start from scratch. I want to go talk to your fishing captains. I want to talk to your um, school teachers. You want to, um, you know, put your put your life on, on film. And I said, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. I said, but if you're that sincere and, and you think it's that um, – because he's telling me that he really believes that this could become something big and people would really relate to it and what have you. And I said, well, if you believe that, I said, then um, I want paid. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, no, people don't get paid for documentaries. And there's, you know, 30,000 documentaries made a year and maybe 3,000 of them will get purchased. And, and out of that 3,000, uh, 3, one will make a, a movie, a theatrical you know, movie or whatever, and said, that's what we're after. And I said, well, that's, you just told me the odds, I might as well just go to Vegas, you know? I'm going to lose my money anyway, so what's, what's the thing? And he said, no, I, I really believe strongly that this could be one of those, you know, that make it to screen. And I said, then you shouldn't have a problem paying me for this documentary. <laughs> and I said, but oh, I got you know, the full plate, I'm pretty busy and I'm not sure that I have a whole lot of time for this documentary. You know, that's obviously going to take up a bunch of time. It's going to be an inconvenience. It's going to be my face, you know, and I, and I guess I just really don't know you or believe you at this point. And I've, um, you know, I'm pretty direct that way. And he said, well, you know, you have no reason to. And I, I get where you're coming from. He said, but um, to show you that I am serious, that we do believe and we are confident in our ability. He said, um, how's 20 grand sound? And I'm like, yep, sold. I'm in. What? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. I said, okay, yep, 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 I'm in. You got my attention. How, uh, how did you go from zero to 20 grand? Before I knew it, there was a film crew in my yard. We're on to filming and all these, all these memories that uh, I didn't really care to relive, being brought to the table, being put on film, being – you know, on uh, recording, and, and I'm starting to relive some some of my past that I had worked hard at forgetting. Mm. And it took a couple of years of filming, and, and uh, you know, they they put it together. They flew me down to um, to New York for the pre-screening. Unbeknownst to me at this time that my main supporter, Canada Goose, out of Toronto, had stepped up to finance a lot of it, that wow. uh, they were ultimately the one that um, that funded the check that they wrote me. This is my personal supporter at the time, that 
you know, they they obviously believed in me. Uh, when I got done uh, watching, of course, I was I was mad. <laughs> I was sad. I was I was um, happy. I was relieved. What were you expecting? Did you know what you were even expecting going into it? I really didn't because the things that we had talked about or filmed or, you know, the interviews leading up to then could have been uh, extremely embarrassing. It could have been extremely uh, devastating to my family, uh, to sponsors, to people who now know my name. You know what I mean? This is something I'm putting in front of the entire world to see and to judge and to, and to mock and to, you know, comment on, but it was what it really was for me was the release of all of those feelings and the animosity and the excuses that I had leading up till that day. I saw that very first release. It was all the things that I kept bottled up. The way they portrayed my story, I felt was extremely professional. It wasn't embarrassing. It may have been a little bit hard for my dad to swallow. When the final version came out, and it was going to be um, aired uh, for the very first time the night before the start of the end drop. Really? And... I um, I got my mom and my dad, obviously, and I pulled them aside prior to going in. And I said, Dad, I just want you to know that this is something uh, that's not meant to embarrass you or to um, offend you. I said, and uh, it's, you know, it's been a long time coming uh, the way I feel that has never been said, you know, or felt. And I and I just want you to know that these are things that I am reliving from the childhood. And he gave me a big hug, and he just looked right at me and said, "Son, people change." Hmm. And we left it at that, and we went in, and I got to sit right in the middle of both my parents, and we held hands for ninety minutes, and we cried, and we laughed, and we cried. And we laughed and we got angry. I mean, hmm. in my opinion, there's more than one story in that story. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of people can relate to that story or those stories within that story. And I, again, I had to realize after that, right there and then, that <laughs> I shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not disappointed. What I just did was something that most people wouldn't have the kahunas to do. And that's put their entire life in front of the whole world to judge and to critique and to have an opinion or, you know. But that's who I am. Yeah. And who I am today is not the person that I started out to be. It might have taken a few wrong turns and a couple of... Uh, a couple of obstacles to, uh, you know, to conquer, but I don't think it turned out too damn bad. If I had to brag about the one thing that became of this entire 47 years of me being on this planet is that 
my parents love me and I love them and we are okay. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people wish they had that. So where it is right now, first off, it was accepted at the Seattle Film Festival. It won. Uh, it won People's <laughs> Choice. It won uh, Crowd, and I don't remember all of them. There were several other categories. And then it was accepted at just about every major film festival across the United States, from Seattle all the way to the East Hamptons. I got to travel to um, as many of those as I wanted, uh, having my mom at my side for several of those, one of my key dogs with me. And we got to go around to um, a fair amount. And just about every film festival that I was at, we received an award of some sort. The story rights have been purchased. Wow. The the script has been written. The casting is in process. I actually got to fly to L.A. and meet uh, the gentleman that will be playing me. Um, Oh, my gosh. That will be surreal. It's shocking to me still. (laughs) It's all kind of a bonus, if you will. You know, the what ifs. The what coulds, the, you know, it's it's not all of those to me. It's the what is. And right now what mm-hmm. is is uh, <laughs> uh, it's kept me at all. It's keeping me motivated. It's, you know, again, things happen for a reason. I don't want to try to figure this out. Staying attached to the present is no easy task, is it? Sometimes we get very discouraged. We hear a lot of no's, a lot of no's. And it's very painful. Every single no hurts a little bit more. But if we keep our eyes focused on what is and where we'd like to go, even if it looks different once we get there, we find that the rogue journey can be full of surprise and amazement. If you liked this conversation with Lance Mackey, be sure to check out my talk with Jim Windler. He's a powerlifting icon, and his presence in that community has changed the course of the sport over the last 15 years. But beyond that, he's now able to be a full-time volunteer football coach at his local high school. And this is where he feels he's doing his best work. You can find that episode and all the others at RogueOnesPodcast.com. If you're listening and have a moment, send me an email, would you? It's greetings at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Greetings like, hello, greetings. I'll put the email in the description. And let me know what you think. Love mail or hate mail, I'll take it all. Thank you to Tim Roscoe for his editing help on this episode. And a special thanks to Ryan Swinehart for all of his work making my episode edits sound good before they get dropped onto your device. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk soon.